Good morning again, church. If you have a Bible, you can open it to Acts chapter 2 is where we will be continuing this morning, Acts chapter 2. If you, just to double click on the announcements there in terms of the discovery class for membership, if that's something you're interested in going to, it doesn't mean that after this class you're a member, so don't feel like if you want to hear more about it, um, what we are as a church, but that is the process for membership. It starts there. You didn't sign up for that and you're interested in that, I'll be here up front after service. Come see me. We can uh, find a place for you and get you plugged in that way today. Um, don't let that be a hindrance to you. What comes to mind uh, when you think of Christian community or I'm going to use the word togetherness a lot today, but togetherness in the church? Um, Maybe good friends, maybe a weekly fellowship night you attend, which has been helpful to you spiritually. Maybe it could be a small group in the church you're part of. I think all of those things, while they can be good and even helpful by themselves, do they necessarily constitute Christian community? I'm going to begin with a story of two churches taken from a book called Compelling Community. Listen along. And these two churches are surprisingly similar. It says that both churches were established in the year 1867. Both grew, both held a significant influence in the capital city during the time surrounding World War II. Both also plateaued in the years that followed, and by the late 20th century were almost at the point of closing their doors. The future of both churches was, you might say, up in the air. But beginning in the late 1990s, both began to grow. Both attracted young people moving into the city again. Both became a vital part of the neighborhood again. For many years, the growth of both increased at really a fairly even and steady rate. Both churches were known for caring for the poor and the vulnerable. On Sunday morning, it was said that both parking lots would be full of a lot of activity, people buzzing all throughout uh, the weekend and throughout the week. Both were said to include a tight-knit, caring, vibrant community, explained by the membership. Yet despite the strong similarities, honestly, these churches couldn't be any different from one another. When interviewed in, a late, uh, 90s, in the late 90s, the pastor of one congregation said he doesn't, he doesn't even call himself. He doesn't understand himself to be a Christian. He said he didn't believe in the atoning work of Christ on the cross or the physical resurrection of Jesus at all. He even explained that he wasn't even sure if he believed in God at all. The other congregation centered on the historic Christian gospel as found in the scriptures. One church's logo cites Romans 10:17, faith comes by hearing. The other describes itself as the church of the open communion. All is welcome. The author's conclusion in telling this story is a true story. A true story in his city. His point is straightforward and something we need to consider this morning. And it's this. You don't need God to build community within a church. So what exactly does make Christian community? Or what makes the community within a church distinctly Christian? Maybe we could say it this way. What in fact makes the church the church? This morning, we're continuing our series in Acts that we're calling Empowered to Be the Church. And this morning, we, we come to the final verses of chapter 2, which I think provide us some answers to this question. This is our third sermon in chapter 2. We've 
as I said, we kind of dealt with chapter 2 in three parts. Three parts really addressing this most important chapter known as Pentecost. And Two weeks ago, we, we dealt with the Spirit's coming in the first 13 verses. And as I said, Luke wants us to see how the Spirit's coming produces two essential things, at least two things. And these two things, which they're two things that really mark the life of God's people in the new age of the Spirit or as new covenant Christians. The first is God's Spirit-empowered proclamation, which we looked at last week through Peter's sermon. God saves His people, births them by His Spirit, and empowers them to speak. We saw Peter do that last week. God intends to draw His people from all nations to Himself through the Spirit-empowered proclamation that proceeds from the lips of His very people, you and I. And now this morning, in verses 42 to 47, we come to that second, what I'm calling a product of Pentecost. New Spirit-filled people, or that we maybe we might say the church or Christian community. It is a direct and logical product of Pentecost. And Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47, teaches us that Christian community is marked by a supernatural togetherness devoted to the person and work of Jesus. The Christian community is it's marked by a supernatural togetherness devoted to the person and work of Jesus. Pick up reading in verse 42 of Acts chapter 2. Read down to verse 47, the end of the chapter. If you'll remember all that's gone before it, in your mind, the Lord has ascended into heaven, poured out His Spirit. Peter stands up to preach. 3,000 come to faith in Christ. And then we read these words. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, They received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Father God, our time, important text, um, a text we probably are very familiar with, um, but I'm absolutely convinced a text we don't think enough about. So God, help us to think well about the fact that you have birthed your people to do something for sure. But you've birthed us to also be something, no doubt. Help us to see that today, that the being and doing of the Christian life are so intertwined. There is not one without the other. Bless the reading of your word and the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Salvation is a community-creating event. And that's the point of Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. Salvation is... A community-creating event. God in, God's intent has always been to have a people for Himself. And this began with Israel. But due to their constant unbelief and their continuous rejection of God, the Old Testament ends with the nation of Israel in utter ruin. But as the Old Testament prophets pointed to, as we've looked at over the past few weeks, the prophets Joel, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, They all pointed to the fact that God had promised that He was going to 
sent His Spirit to accomplish a, a new, a greater, and a lasting work through the promised One, whom we know to be God's Son, Jesus Christ. He was going to establish a new Israel, as Paul says, a, a new people born of and empowered by the Holy Spirit to bear witness to His name amongst all nations. And Acts chapter 2 is the unfolding of this very reality. Remember back now, the twelve tribes are now made whole with the choosing of Matthias in chapter 1. Exiles have been gathered from the, all the nations, it said, from every four corners of the globe to Jerusalem at the time of Pentecost. And the Spirit descends just as promised, reflective as what took place on Mount Sinai. And as the Spirit comes, this small, ragtag, disconnected group of Jewish exiles, led by Peter of all people, are remade into the true people of God. And this remaking of Israel was evident in Peter's sermon last week. I didn't point this out, but I'm sure you heard it as we went through it. The address that Peter addressed, the way Peter addressed the crowd last week. He addressed the people very specifically as men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem. Chapter 2, verse 14. And then in chapter 2, verse 22, all men of Israel, he says. And then verse 36 of chapter 2, all the house of Israel. What's Peter doing? Like, everyone's not there from Israel. What exactly is Peter doing here? And by Peter's address, we see that he understands himself not to be just announcing the reality of Jesus. He is doing that. And not just proclaiming something, but he's, he's announcing something. He's announcing that this new age of the Spirit, that God is establishing a new people for Himself. And while it's connected to the old, it's most assuredly new in so many, in almost every way. Entrance now hangs on God's Son. It's required, what's required is repentance for sin and belief in Jesus. The resurrected Son and the, the ascended King. And as Peter preached... Empowered by the Spirit, the true miracle of Pentecost took place. A great harvest of 3,000 souls were convicted of sin. They repented and they were saved. Receiving the Holy Spirit as well. Peter didn't look to all of Israel and say, Hey, you're, you're, you're already part of God's people, so now just come along. No, he said, Hey guys, you are God's people, but you want to become God's people? Repent and trust in Jesus. That's how you become God's people. Something new was taking place here. But after 3,000 were repented, were saved, were baptized, then what happened? Did they just go on their way to figure out this new faith on their own? No, the text says last week they were baptized. They were baptized. They, were pub they publicly identified themselves with Jesus. I'm going to say it over and over again today in many different ways, but there is no place for individualistic Christianity. Baptism alone teaches us that. That when you're baptized, you're publicly going public with your faith. And when they were baptized, publicly identifying with Jesus, they were then brought into the new company of Jesus' people. Salvation is a community-creating event. The giving of the Holy Spirit, salvation in Jesus Christ, results in the new community in Christ. Salvation produces community. And this community is called the church. To be joined to Jesus is to be joined to His body. So through the Holy Spirit, we are reconciled to God or reconciled to one another. Paul says, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews and Greeks, slaves or free, we were all made to drink of one spirit, he says. 
So to be in Christ is to be in the church of Christ, the new community of God. And that means Christian community, before anything else, is a supernatural reality created by God Himself. God creates Christian community. He birthed it by His very Spirit. In Acts chapter 2, these verses ahead of us, I think we find, we can say a model or a blueprint of what the earliest Christian community looked like. So the rest of our time, I want to give us four marks, four ingredients of Christian community this morning. And the first one is this, the Christian community is devoted to the Word of God. And like, let me just say this, like all ingredients when you cook, like you can add other things. So I'm not saying, this is everything. But with certain recipes, if certain ingredients in it are not in it, it can't be called that thing, right? Well, here, these must be there. These are essential. The first one is this, a Christian community is devoted to the Word of God. So the first aspect Luke gives for this new spirit-filled community in verse 42 is that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. The church is to be a learning and studying community. We are a people who are supposed to ground and test our experiences, not in the world, in the Word of God, or the instruction and teaching of the apostles, he says. Now the apostles were, were those specifically chosen by Jesus to witness, to teach about, and to authentically record the events and meaning of His ministry. These men walk with Jesus. They witness His resurrection. They were appointed by Christ Himself. They participated directly in the signs and, 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 and wonders ministry of Jesus. Their purpose, among others, included the explanation of who Jesus was and what His life and death meant and had accomplished. This is what we saw in last week's sermon in Peter's sermon. This is exactly what he did. Peter argues directly from the Old Testament, presenting Jesus as the Messiah as the, as the Messiah that was promised and as the fulfillment of all that the prophets had looked for. So when verse 42 says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, something very specific is being stated here. They had, de- they had a devotion to the Word, of course, but specifically they devoted themselves to the apostolic interpretation of the Word of God which focused its intent and meaning on the person and work of Jesus as Jesus Himself taught. This is Jesus on the Emmaus Road. He didn't give them new scriptures to think about. He took them back, it says, to the law, the prophets, and the Psalms, pointing that all of it was about Him, it says. So the culmination of this that we have today is our New Testament writings, which I'm preaching from this morning. So evidence of the Spirit's work in the early church was their willingness to sit at the apostles' feet. to to learn from them and soak up their instruction regarding Jesus. And the authority of their message was authenticated by miraculous signs which accompanied their teaching, just as it did Jesus. Look at verse 43. It says, And awe came upon every soul, and many signs and wonders were being done through the apostles. Very important. It makes it specifically points that it came about through the apostles. Now it's interesting, we could think, how many other things Luke could have mentioned first to describe this new spirit-filled community? If I were to ask that question first, like, what do you, think's the, uh, what do you think of the marks of spirit-filled community? We would have got all kinds of answers, and probably most of them would have been right. But it's important what he lists first here. He begins with the devotion to the Word, 
to the apostolic teaching. So community marked by the Spirit, Christian community will always be a Bible teaching, Bible study, and gospel proclaiming church. John Stott says a Spirit-filled church is a New Testament church in the sense that it studies and submits to the New Testament instruction. The Spirit of God leads the people of God to submit to the Word of God. So devotion to the Word of God is at the heart of true Christian community. This point cannot be stressed enough. A community within a church, we'll think about this more later, can be formed in many ways, and it it does get formed within many ways within the body. This can be age-specific, gender-specific, ministry-specific, small group, life, etc., but what's at the center is really important. right? And within the church, we should never subdivide community for community's sake. We subdivide community to better aid the body in learning, studying, and especially applying the Word of God to our lives. So for community to be Christian, there must first be this devotion to the Word of God. And this devotion to God through His Word should spill over to a devotion towards one another. So the second ingredient here is that Christian community is devoted to gospel living. Verse 42 says, they devoted themselves not just to the apostles' teaching, but to fellowship. This word here is koinonia, which has its root in the idea of holding something in common together. The common everyday Greek language people spoke and the New Testament was written in was called koine Greek because it was the common language shared by the people. It held the people together. So God's Spirit-filled people, Christian community, share in a common life. They are held together in at least two senses. They share in something, and it shares out something. The church shares in the fellowship of the gospel. We share in the fellowship of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. 1 John 1.3 says, That which we have seen and have heard we proclaim also to you, so that you may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son. 2 Corinthians 13.14, Paul speaks of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, he says. So what binds the church together is our common, shared experience of God's grace. It is the gospel. It is God's work in us, in Himself. We share in the life, the death, the resurrection of Christ for our sins. That's what it means to be a Christian. To be a Christian, you must come to a place in your life where you recognize your sin as an affront to a holy and righteous God. You must recognize the due, just punishment you deserve for your sin. And you must recognize that you personally need a Savior. And then you must come to know and trust Jesus, God's Son, to be that Savior. To be a Christian is to accept His death as a payment for the punishment due your sin and embrace His life that He offers by committing yourself to Him. It is this shared experience of grace, which we find in the Gospel, that binds us together as Christian community. We see this and the beauty of this every time we partake of the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper symbolizes our fellowship. It defines, it marks our koinonia, our commonality in the grace of, the, of God in the gospel. Like each time I administer the supper, it's done amongst you guys. Differing 
ages, experiences, backgrounds, ethnicities. And yet the cup and the wafer represent a radical commonality to be present amongst us in the gospel. A fellowship of grace. Like all the structures and human barriers that divide us, these are only increasing. Age, sex, race, interest, intellect, status. All those things are torn down in a healthy Christian community. By the cross of Jesus Christ. That's by what? Our togetherness is found in this common sharing in the gospel. But their fellowship was not just based on what they had received in the gospel, but what they gave as a response to the gospel. Because they shared in God, they shared out to one another. Look at verses 44 and 45. And all who believed were together. They had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Now, it's worth pointing out here, just to throw it out there, this has nothing to do with, as some allude to or try to write, that this is some form of socialism or whatever you want to make of that. And if we pay attention, this is actually described something completely opposite of that, right? And this was voluntary. This wasn't required. The tense of the verb in verse 45 is they were selling, they were distributing, suggests the people were aiding each other as circumstances arises. And we know that because our English translations try to help us understand that rightly by adding that little phrase, as they had need, to help make this clear. So this is not saying everyone sold all their stuff and gave all their belongings away as a principle. If that was the case, how did they have houses to meet in? How are there wealthy Christians talked about in the New Testament? You can't be wealthy if you give everything away. What's being described here then? Fellowship is being described here. Gospel living is being described here. The generosity of God in the gospel had so gripped this people that it permeated every one of their interactions together. They saw none of their possessions as inherently their own. They fellowshiped. They shared. They understood their salvation had brought about together them together in a supernatural way. And in such a way that there exists a responsibility for one another which shape their interactions together. We take a lot of the commands in the New Testament just for granted. Paul says, rebuke one another. Care for one another. Love one another. Exhort one another. There's an assumption there that you and me as Christians in a local church together share a responsibility for one another on some level. That assumption is all over the New Testament. These people understood that. And it's important to note here, though, that the context is important, that these believers, they did probably live in walking distance from each other. They did live in a merchant trade type of society, much different than ours, right? If you had a piece of equipment, it wasn't just your piece of equipment, it was the neighborhood's piece of equipment. It's just the way it worked. So we've got to be careful when we make applications here, not to make one-to-one applications. We've got to be wise when we do that. But we also need to be honest regarding how this text does, this text does confront us in the way that we tend to institutionalize the local church in ways that are absolutely, completely foreign to the New Testament. We have to guard our churches from functioning more like businesses than a Christian community. Right? Pastors tend to serve as CEOs. The worship leader is a successful musician that you go find and hire and pay a whole bunch of money to. No, we must guard ourselves from trying to 
Create the best experience to attract the best people, the best customers. And you think that sounds ridiculous? But the reality is many church planting, many church growth strategies are built on that very principle. While we should seek excellence in everything we do, we should. We must not forget that the portrait of the Christian community in the Bible is much more like a family than any other type of organization. These early Christians, they knew that to belong to Jesus was to belong to one another. When we receive God as our Father, we receive each other as brothers and sisters in the Lord. And this reality should be expressed in the way we share life with one another. Think of Romans 12. I preached on this text recently where Paul comes out of that great doctrinal portion of his text and sort of turns the corner and says, love one another with brotherly affection. Chapter 12, verse 10 through 13. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. In that portion of Scripture, Paul is saying he's given them this clear doctrinal understanding of the gospel. And he's saying if you understand the gospel, what will it look like? One thing it will look like is this. It looked like this, that we love each other with brotherly affection. If we so understand what God has done for us in Christ, we'll be trying to outdo each other in showing honor to each other. If we so understand the privilege that we have in Christ and what He's done for us, we'll be fervent in spirit. We'll serve the Lord. We'll rejoice in hope. We'll be patient in tribulation. We'll remain constant in prayer. And yes, we'll contribute to the needs of the saints because we had nothing and Christ gave us everything. And we'll seek to show hospitality. That's exactly what God did for us. We didn't deserve a place at his table, but he purchased us the place at his table. Is that how we see one another, church? Is that what we understand salvation to have accomplished? Family? Christian communities be marked by a, a shared gospel living with one another. We share in the, in the grace of God found in the gospel, which should spill over to us sharing our lives with one another. Ingredient three. There's a devotion, or Christian community is devoted to authentic worship. Verse 42 said they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread and prayers. These two together, breaking bread and prayers, are, speaks to table fellowship, no doubt. Most likely a reference, though, to the Lord's Supper, which almost certainly at this time included a larger meal taking place during worship. But look down at verses 46, 47. There's... Worship is further addressed. It says here, And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. There's a balance, I think, in relationship to worship we should consider here. Right? Um, apparently, these early Christians were still meeting in the temple formally for worship. And this, this, um, this was probably the court of the Gentiles where large crowds could gather. We kind of see that play out in the book of Acts. But at the same time, it seems that they supplemented their formal worship in the temple with informal and, might we say, spontaneous meetings in their homes. The point here, I think, is found in that repeated phrase, together, in one accord. You find it in verse 44 and in 46. They were in one accord. They were in common. So time and space cannot define true Christian community. The Spirit hasn't given 
wasn't given for the people of God to function as such solely on Sunday morning from 10 to 12, or might any other block of time we put on our calendars. Well, the only church, the early church understood their salvation and the receiving of the Holy Spirit had created something new in each individual that was expressed corporately in the body of Christ. So they were together. They needed to be together. They belonged together. They sacrificed their time and their recess to, in fact, be together. Togetherness is the principle. And it is the expectation of the Christian community all throughout the Bible. We have to fight to keep our Christianity from amounting to nothing more than time and space. This place, this amount of time. I'm not like saying that specific times and specific places aren't important. We're doing the most important one right now. But the structured time and space of the Christian community should spill over to togetherness, to organic living. The formal should lead to the informal. Structure should lead to organic because together is the call of the Bible. So church, are we together? You say, I don't know how much are you talking about. The Bible doesn't give us that type of specifics to kind of quantify it simply gives us the principle of being together and it simply assumes that we are together so maybe we could ask it this way if you meet a new person at work meet a new person out in the community or wherever you meet new people you start to become friends with them you begin to see them maybe once or twice a week for a few months would that end up causing them to meet someone else within our church Would the intersection of your life with their life mean them crossing paths with someone from inside this body? That's a good measure of understanding are we together? Are we sharing life together? We've got different schedules, differing times, differing stages of life. Some have more time, some less time. But are we living life in such a way that if someone gets to know us, they're going to know these people are intimately a part of their life too. Why? Because of Jesus. Our worship should be, there's togetherness here. In our lives together, our worship together should be joyful and reverent. He says that. And this should extend to every area of our life. It should begin here on Sunday morning gatherings, but it should infect our lives throughout the week. There's a fourth ingredient here. Our Christian community should result in faithful witness in the world. So we've talked about the church's teaching, about fellowship and worship as defining its community. This is what the early church devoted themselves to. But there's more here. Must not leave out 46, which I do think functions here as a, something of a result statement. God used their devotion to the Word. God used their devotion to one another. God used their, their worship to solidify their witness in the world. It says, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So the, the byproduct of this supernatural fellowship where spirit-filled believers are learning together, sharing together, worshiping together, the text says is growth. And this happens through our witness and evangelism. As one author says, the Holy Spirit is a missionary spirit 
who created a missionary church. So these early Christians were not preoccupied with the internal life of the body, as important as that is, to the extent of neglecting their witness and their understanding of their purpose in the world around them. That the apostolic instruction, the correct interpretation of the Word of God, demands we proclaim the message of salvation to the world around us. I love studying theology. Some of you do as well. And you ask me about books to read. And you want to see my books on my shelf in my office and talk about them and praise God for that. But if those books on that shelf that are rightly helping us understand this aren't leading me and us to share our faith with those around us, we're not studying doctrine right. We're missing the point of the whole thing. The right apostolic understanding of the Scriptures made them understand a responsibility of their life together in this world for the glory of Christ. We proclaim, uh, we proclaim the message of salvation to the world around us. And the text says here, growth is a byproduct of that. But I want you to, be, to notice here who brings the growth. It says, the Lord added to their number day by day. Christ is the head of the church. Only He has the power to bestow salvation on whom He sees fit. We pray, we preach, we proclaim, He saves. We witness, we remain faithful, He adds, He grows. Church, man can grow a crowd. Only God can grow a church. We can labor hard to build a congregation, but only God builds the body of Christ. The building up of the body of Christ is a supernatural work beyond our gifts and abilities. Getting people into a building is a work of man. Growing authentic Christian community is a supernatural work of God's Spirit. It is in fact the product, one of the products of Pentecost. So our aim, church, is not growth. We don't scratch our heads and pray and to say, how are we going to grow our church? We say, how are we going to be faithful? What has God called us to be? He's called us to be faithful. Our aim is to, to devote ourselves to being the body of Christ, to living the gospel and proclaiming it to our community. And God, if He sees fit in His timing and His way, brings growth. Now, the ordering of this last phrase in 46 does take us back to where I began. And he added to their numbers day by day those who were being saved. It didn't just say he added. He added to their numbers day by day those who were being saved. Again, salvation is a community-creating event. Those who were saved were added. Brothers and sisters, Christianity is always personal. But it is never private. A privatized Christianity, me and Jesus, you cannot find on the pages of the New Testament. A Christian who has their personal devotion every day in their Bible and grows off of conference messages and Bible apps, disconnected from the body of Christ, the Bible has no category to call that person a Christian. The manner in which you become a Christian and go public with your faith as you profess your faith in Jesus, you are baptized to go public with your union with the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and you come into the company of God's people. 
That's the New Testament. We struggle with that in our culture. I'm not... East Coast has its own struggles. A lot of struggles. I'm not making the West Coast any different in that sense or any worse. But this is one the West Coast really struggles with. We believe... I hear it all over. I'm a Christian. I've been a Christian for 20 years. Where do you go to church? I don't go to church. Who's, who are the Christians that you fellowship with? I don't, I don't need that. I have my Bible in creation. I hike. I get out in nature. None of those things are bad. That is not the manner in which the New Testament calls someone a Christian. We're not loving people by allowing them to say that and not challenging them. Who are you connected to? Who knows your life? Who are you submitting to? What is the Word of God? Yes, the Word of God is your authority, but how is that lived out in a local church? What does that look like? Who are you discipling? Who's discipling you? Who's asking you hard questions about sin? Who are you asking hard questions about sin? All of these things are a means of grace that God's given us to walk in the Christian life with. We just finished the book of Hebrews talking about finishing the race and enduring in the faith. Brothers and sisters, this is the means God's given us to finish. Yes, if we finish, it won't be because of people. It'll be because of the Holy Spirit of God. But we are a means by which the Holy Spirit of God gives to us to help us walk together in the Christian life. A privatized Christianity won't be found in the Bible. People are always, you, me, are always saved individually. No one comes to the kingdom based upon parents, grandparents, friends, salvation. You don't, get on the, you don't come into the kingdom on the back of no one. You're saved individually. You must personally repent of your sins and trust Jesus as Savior to become a Christian. You come to Christ. We all come to Christ one at a time, but when we come to Christ, we come into the company of His people. God saves, and when He does, He adds to His church. And it is this supernatural togetherness which God uses to authenticate His gospel message. Here, God authenticated the apostles' message by supernatural means. Signs and wonders. We're going to see that. We saw it in the life of Jesus. We see it in the the book of Acts as it goes forward. Brothers and sisters, today God still supernaturally authenticates the gospel message to the world around us through supernatural realities. That's the Christian community itself. When the world sees a group of people, differing ages, ethnicities, differing socioeconomic backgrounds, differing political persuasions, all together studying the Word of God, sharing life together, caring for one another, worshiping together from house to house, it will take notice. The conclusion will have to be, they will have to listen to the message and say, Something natural could not bring that about. Thank God we do have this in our body. I thank God I see it and I'm a part of it here. But we do thank God by being good stewards of what we have. And I want us to present a distinction that's from the book that I began with, Compelling Community, that I think is important we hear. And this distinction is what the author calls between Gospel plus community versus gospel revealing community. In gospel plus communities, relationships are founded on the gospel 
plus something else. Like while members share Jesus, the real reason they are close is due to some sort of affinity. It could be age, stage of life, singleness, marriage, divorce, maybe parenting, specific hobbies, many other good things. These things can prove very effective for building and growing communities within the church. And as I said, many church planning strategies and church growth strategies, they seek to apply this very model in order to attract and keep people. How can we get a bunch of people who share in something together and let's promote that and we'll attract them all? But the problem is that community says very little concerning the power of the gospel, right? Because if the gospel is removed, the affinity, which oftentimes is the real glue, it still remains. But contrast this with gospel revealing community, which is community that would not exist apart from the truth and power of the gospel. It just doesn't make sense. This is when people have deep, meaningful relationships with other people who have very little in common with them but Jesus. And while affinity-based relationships play a role in every church, in some sense that's natural. We're all part of those. What we need to see is that they, they don't go deep enough because they limit our relationships to people and things we typically only find comfortable in our lives. But getting out of our comfort zones, right? building community with people not like us, forces us to find commonality, not in our comforts, but in Jesus. And this reveals the power, the supernatural power of the gospel which marks Christian community. The gospel is not something you can see. It's not tangible, right? It's truth that's to be proclaimed. But the church, the Christian community, is to be the gospel visible. It's to make it tangible. And I think which gospel revealing relationships display. But that's not honestly our first inclination, right? Gospel revealing community. We, we like to gravitate, toward, gravitate towards what's com- comfortable. I do too. We look for people who, think, who we think are like us. We walk into a room, we try to find someone who looks like us. And we come into church and we find a community with people who look like us. And we like being around people who share what we share. And the danger of this within the church is that we can actually build a really, really, really strong community. But one that might even exist if the gospel wasn't here. But now, on some level, right, like I said, we all have affinity-based relationships in this church. That's not a bad thing, so I'm not asking you to abandon all those today. But I want you, if you have those affinity-based relationships that we have in our church, I think those call us to be especially diligent and a good steward of those by making sure those relationships stay centered on Jesus. Not whatever commonality we share with each other, or each person or group. So when we're together in those groups, maybe for the, for, the, for the purpose of an affinity, it's good. Make sure Jesus is there. Ask questions about our walk. Ask questions about our sin. Ask questions about how you can pray for each other. Not just enjoy whatever you're doing together. Enjoy those things. Put Jesus at the center of those things. But I think this also should challenge us to move beyond our comfort zones. By God's Spirit and build community across new lines as opportunities to make the gospel more visible within our body. Look, our, I don't have to tell you this, but our culture just continues to get more divisive and more hostile. It continues to be associated by groups, 
Are you a part of this group? Good, because I don't like you. Are you part of this group? Good, because that means you're this. We're all part of that. And as our culture continues to go down that rabbit hole, that does create all kinds of challenges for us as a church. But it also presents us great opportunity to display where true power can be found. As our world continues to divide and fight, it simply exposes its inability to have a power that can change. There's no lasting power to it. It demonstrates the hollowness of this world. But when we, the people of God, who share some of those differences, are together, sharing life, sharing our Savior, worshiping together, here on Sundays, in the neighborhood, people will take notice something supernatural must be amongst those people. And it gives us the opportunity to proclaim. We create all kinds of communities outside the church, inside the church. But what I want you to hear this morning is that only God creates Christian community. He supernaturally brings us together as the body of Christ through the work of the Spirit. And Christian community marked by the Spirit will include, must include, a devotion to the Word of God. A devotion to sharing life together. It's going to include loving fellowship. It's going to include authentic worship. It's going to include a faithful witness in the world around us. All these ingredients are what we find in Acts chapter 2. So maybe you're thinking like, how do I do that? Where to begin? What does that look like? I just want to give two simple applications. I've even said these before to you. I'll say them again to you because they're worth hearing. The first thing everyone in this room has to do is think less of yourself. Christian community is not about you. It's not about me. It's not about the pastors. It's first and foremost about the Lord. And it's more about us than we than me, I should say. We must humble ourselves. As believers, we humble ourselves by remembering the cross. We were orphaned, separated from God in our sin. Because of the gospel, we've been saved, we've been forgiven, we've been brought into a family. We all need to think less of ourselves and more about loving and caring one another. How can I give my life away to serve others is the way of Christ. Put the interests of others before yourself, Paul says. But secondly, you need to think more of yourself. Think less of yourself, but you need to think more of yourself. Christian community is dependent upon the Christian. Living as a Christian. So you're needed. You have a story. You have a life experience. No one else has. You also have sin struggles that other people have in this church. When you hold them to yourself and isolate them from yourself, you make other people think, no one else struggles with sin like I do. I must be an odd character. And the reality is, we're all struggling. Maybe not in the same way, but we all struggle with sin, and we will until the day we see Jesus. So we all have life experiences, good or bad. And God intends to use those if we submit them to Him to help foster community within our church. So as I close, I just want to say to you, no one here is too old, too young, too broken, too different, too odd to play a vital role in the body of Christ. If you're willing 
to submit all of who you are to Him and to be used by Him for the building up of the body of Christ and to the mature manhood of Him. Because Christian community is marked by supernatural togetherness resulting from the person and the work of Jesus. We keep Him at the center. Let's pray. Father, we do thank You for Your Word. We do thank You for this great text. We thank you for this blueprint, honestly. And God, I thank you for what we do take part in here. God, I pray that each one of us in this room might, even today, ask you personally, how do I need to think of myself less? And we will be honest about that. How do I need to put the interests of others before me? Maybe it's my time Maybe it's my being uncomfortable. I don't know what that is. God, maybe put ourselves aside, put the interests of others first, recognizing that we are needed. So we think less of ourselves, but we need to think more of ourselves. Sometimes we think that our absence doesn't mean much. Our absence means a lot. Because a person born of the Spirit of God is not present in the community. So God, remind us of Authenticity and honesty before you is what people need to see because they see Jesus. And God, I thank you for the church. I thank you for this church, the hill. I thank you for what you're doing in our church. And God, I pray each person here who's a member of our church and beyond would take a special feeling of responsibility, joy, gratitude to be a part of it, but then a responsibility to how can I better grow it and be a part of making it stronger and more solidified on Christ. We love you, Lord. We close by singing of the truth of the gospel as we began. And remind us of that truth, reaching every step of the Christian life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.